I'm Marcus Smith, and this is Constant Wonder. Freedom House, Part 2. This is a continuation of the awesome story about a persistent, dedicated group of innovative upstarts in Pittsburgh who pioneered the concept of paramedics, the whole idea of administering emergency medical services away from traditional hospitals. I'm talking about the first first responders, the pioneers of street medicine, as it's called. Now, if you're just getting on board with this story, be sure to jump back to part one of this podcast in order to get up to speed. It's a course of events that began in 1966 when Pennsylvania's former governor, who had also been a four-time mayor of Pittsburgh, suddenly collapsed while speaking at a political rally. By today's standards of urgent care, his ambulance ride may as well have been by hay cart or horse wagon. Now, it was a modern automobile, but in function, little more than a thing with wheels long enough to transport a recumbent body. For this former Pennsylvania Governor David Lawrence to survive, his only real chance was to reach medical experts without delay, those experts waiting far, far away behind hospital doors. If you haven't heard part one yet, I'm not going to spoil it for you by telling you whether he made it or not. Now, there's wonder to be found in so many different aspects of this story, but I think one of the biggest places is in the fact that for something that is just understood as a given today, street medicine actually had to be invented, and there was somebody to do it. Now, returning to the point in the story where we left off, here's Kevin Hazard again. He's a veteran paramedic, a journalist, and author of American Sirens, the incredible story of the black men who became America's first paramedics. Imagine you're sent out to, to help someone. Your sole purpose is to save lives in need. You get to somebody's side, and they say to you, is there somebody else? Can't, can't you send someone else? I didn't know that they were going to be sending you. Are you sure you have to touch me? Because I'm not certain I want you to touch me. And they had to deal with a lot of that with, with patients who were not at all certain that they wanted two black men laying hands on them. Now, I don't know about you, but I scarcely know how to react when I hear about these kinds of scenarios. And apparently there were many. What a warped world, I, I think, where someone teetering on the brink of death might object to treatment because of the color of a first responder. Here's John Moon, one of the Freedom House paramedics. We met him in episode one with his view of this from the ground. There were times where we would come upon a person in an affluent neighborhood that had their own personal views or opinions on uh, being examined by an African-American. And they would essentially say, well, I don't want you to do all that. An example would be maybe there's certain articles of clothing that I would have to open or remove to place uh, electrodes on your chest to monitor your heart. Instead of you putting emphasis on your condition, you put the emphasis on the person that's actually doing it. It's up to me to slowly pacify that situation to a point where I could get the job done because you had already built up this perception in your mind that this black person is coming in here laying his hands on me and it never happened before and uh, how dare you. But you simply say, I'm here to help you, number one, and number two is if you 
don't want me to do A, B, C, and D, then your prognosis is obviously going to change. Are you willing to accept that risk because you don't want me to touch you? There were sometimes, yes, I'll accept it. And other times they relented and said, okay, whatever you have to do. Each person had its own way of dealing with, with these unique situations. And I kind of developed a more compassionate way of presenting the issue to the patient. I felt confident that I could present myself in a way that would put you in a position to accept my help. If you regretted it afterwards or whatever the case is, I got you in the back of my vehicle and you're in my environment now. So I got control of that situation. Once I get you into my environment, so I'm the person in charge here now. As you listen to John Moon expressing what was going on here, it's not hard to read between the lines. He's speaking diplomatically, of course, uh, what he calls affluent neighborhoods. Well, that's just a reference to smaller white neighborhoods or pockets within the predominantly black Hill District. And some of these white people, even when life was on the line, did not take well or kindly to being treated by black medics. They preferred sticking to the racial lines that they had drawn in the sand. Uh, I think the, the, the most apt metaphor maybe is that right there in the hill district, they had their hills of bigotry to die on. Perhaps the most frustrating and heartbreaking part of this is the city itself, from a governmental standpoint, never accepted them. You know, the moment that Freedom House gets out there, other cities around the country begin adopting their model. You know, there's proof that other cities were both reaching out to them and also sort of looking at what they were doing and saying, yeah, that's it. Let's go ahead and, and copy that. And they were doing it quite successfully. They, at one point, they go, they attend a conference in Mainz, Germany. So they are all over the place. They are accepted everywhere but at home. The mayor, a guy named Peter Flaherty, never embraced Freedom House. He spent a lot of time insisting that his hesitation to their organization was that he didn't believe that paramedics were of value. And he didn't think that they were worth any money and that the police were good enough. One by one, they were able to prove his arguments wrong. And when he finally had no more arguments, he just started putting impediments in their way. So they, they made it so they could not use their sirens downtown, which slowed them down. And then there were all these rumors that got started that, oh, you know, the, be careful in a Freedom House ambulance. They're selling drugs out of those things. They're running dice games out of those things. It was a very difficult environment that they had. And yet every day they showed up. They ran their calls, and they, they served as not only a model inside the city of Pittsburgh for how things should be done, but nationwide as a model for how things should be done. So the Freedom House medics had to prove their worth, and they must have done this on hand of very specific cases. I, I know you tell a story, for instance, of a kid on a bicycle and a head-on collision. Is this the kind of proof that at least let them make those inroads, if not fully persuade someone like Mayor Flaherty? Yeah, you know, there are a number of instances in which you know, Freedom House really shines. And one of them, as you say, is, is there's a child in a neighborhood called Squirrel Hill. Squirrel Hill is a, a mostly white neighborhood outside of, of the area that, that Freedom House would normally cover. In my mind, is in an affluent neighborhood where Freedom House was not allowed to provide service, there was a young kid struck by a bus. He was on a bike and a bus really critically injured this kid. So since Freedom House is not allowed in this affluent neighborhood, the police were dispatched. They arrived on the scene. 
and noticed that the severity, and they got back on the radio and said, could you send us Freedom House Ambulance? And the dispatcher politely told them, I can't do that because it's not their area. The police officer on the scene says, well, it may not be, but we want someone out here that knows what the hell they're doing. And at that time, once again, you go back to Freedom House with monitoring the police's radio. So we actually heard the actual call and the transmission and responded there, subsequently uh, stabilized the child and uh, transported him to the hospital. Uh, the call itself, as I'm telling it to you, is a lot more mild manner than it actually was because it was very, he was very uh, seriously injured. Traumatic injuries to both legs that required serious surgery once we arrived at the hospital. They win the police department over, although they, it happens belatedly, unfortunately. But there are a number of cases like that. And, you know, Saffer is, was not one to be quiet. And as the mayor, and the mayor was not alone, there were other politicians who were fighting as well. But as, as the mayor kept coming out to say, you know, they're no better than anybody else, or the, the option is simply too expensive. Time and time again, Saffer would present him with empirical data to say, look, your cops are doing this wrong nearly 80% of the time. We're doing it right nearly 80% of the time. David Lawrence is a perfect example. Kevin Hazard is talking about Peter Saffer. In part one, we learned about Saffer, the father of CPR, the godfather of Freedom House, a pivotal figure in getting all this rolling. But it's 1974, and Freedom House is still struggling after half a decade of operation, still struggling for respect in Pittsburgh. Meanwhile, their method of practicing medicine, it's capturing attention elsewhere. As Kevin Hazard has already mentioned, various cities around the United States, even outside of the country, are starting to try out their own versions of the Freedom House program. And the U.S. Department of Transportation, acutely aware of trauma being a neglected disease, begins searching for a national model of street medicine. Freedom House is at a crossroads, underfunded, running ragged, facing resentment and racial animus from a city government. Safar was getting overwhelmed himself. Too much to do, and he needed an administrator, a leader to seize the reins of the program, to really run with things. Ideally, this person would help Freedom House be chosen as the model program for the new national push on EMS services. Peter Saffer is a brilliant man, but he's also you know, a man whose mind moves in a thousand directions. So he was building a resuscitation institute at the University of Pittsburgh at the same time that he was running Freedom House. And he's you know, a, a doctor who's very much in demand. So his attention is not always there. He had other people that he appointed, but you know, you've got to understand late 60s, early 70s, who are these doctors? They're largely men and they're largely white. And they're, they're being asked to step into this thing that it's, it's not quite medicine as they understand it to be. And the people practicing it are not quite medical professionals as he understands them to be. And so there's this cultural disconnect that is very rarely breached and certainly not for long. And the result of that is that by 1974, Freedom House has been operating almost entirely on its own. The oversight has been very hit or miss at best. The challenges that they've had from the city, both from steadily shrinking budgets to just the hurdles that they put in front of them, have worn everybody down. And the service is sort of, it's on its heels a little bit. They're trying to, they're trying at that point to really get themselves to be the most dynamic and successful version 
of street medicine that they can be because in 74, Gerald Ford creates this presidential advisory for EMS. And what what he wants them to do is create this sort of standardized training program that can be trotted out across the country. And what he needs is he needs a single EMS service to sort of develop and then field test this program, this training program. Essentially, he needs someone to serve as the standard for EMS in the United States. And Safra has been asked to be part of this presidential advisory committee. So he sees this incredible opportunity. Here's this organization that he helped to create that he's very, very closely connected to that desperately needs help. And if anything will give you legitimacy, it is being handpicked by the president of the United States to say, you are the standard. And so Saffer needs this organization to be as absolutely powerful and as good as it can be. He needs an ambulance wizard. He needs a medical wizard. He needs a personnel wizard. He needs the biggest dynamo he can find. And he's got a bunch of those. He attracts great talent. He reaches out to all of them and they all say no. So he strikes out on all of his top doctors. And so he turns to this doctor who had just arrived from Cleveland named Nancy Caroline. At this point, zero experience. She's just out of her residency. She graduated from high school early. She went to Radcliffe. And then she goes to a, a medical school in Ohio called Case Western, which is sort of as eccentric as, as medical schools can get at that time, but a very good program. And he essentially bullies her into taking it. You know, she, she wants to say no. And Safford, he can't have anybody else say no. So he just keeps pressing on her. Now, luckily for Saffer, Nancy Caroline is the ultimate contrarian. She's very anti-authoritarian and very much of an independent mind. And so she listens to her colleagues saying, don't do this. It cannot be done. You will hate this. And the more people say, you can't do this, the more Nancy says, all right, I'm going to go ahead and do this. As Saffer is sort of refusing to take no, Nancy says, all right, fine, I'm going to do this, but I'm gonna, you're going to have to let me do it my way. So she comes with you know, credentials that very few people can match. And she's incredibly intelligent and incredibly driven, but she has no idea. She doesn't know what a paramedic is. She's never been on an ambulance. None, none of this is in her wheelhouse at all, nor does she have anything in common with the young men that she's been tasked to lead. So not only does she not know what they do, but she doesn't really know who they are. And they, at the same time, they don't know what she's supposed to do, nor do they know who she is. And it is not a good fit. They do not trust each other. They do not understand each other. But they need each other, and they know that. Freedom House is aware that this, they've got a bullseye on their back. Nancy is aware that nobody thinks she can pull this off. So she's got to make this happen, and they've got to get as good as they can get. These two opposites are sort of attracted by this mutually assured destruction that will come if, if they cannot figure this out. John Moon has especially fond memories of Nancy Caroline. He remembers her as someone who pushed her personnel at Freedom House to take on more and more challenges on the street, and not just more challenges, but new challenges, including certain medical procedures that, outside of the brick and mortar of a hospital, were unprecedented. She was a very compassionate, confident, brilliant person, and she had a way of instilling in you confidence that you didn't know you had. And she did that without the yelling and the screaming and in a, in a very compassionate way. And she was able to prove to you that you could do a certain procedure. Whether you thought it was beyond your scope of training or practice, I, as your medical director, I have confidence in you that you can do it because I saw you do it in training. 
And she was instrumental in telling me to do the very first out-of-hospital intubation, tracheal intubation in the country. And when she told me to do that, I thought she had lost her mind. And she simply said, I want you to intubate this person. And I did it without thinking, is this something new or is something I should be doing? I went out and did it and transported the person to the emergency room. That was the beginning of the problem because the emergency room physician was not aware of what we were doing in the field. So we come in with this person intubated and he wanted to know who did it. I said, I did. Well, who told you to do it? Dr. Nancy Caroline. He had no idea who she was. Fortunately for me, there was an emergency room nurse that was familiar with some of the stuff that we were doing and simply told him they're allowed to do that now. And subsequently, that was the, the intervention that kind of put Freedom House really out there. And we weren't accepted by every emergency room that we came into contact with. There were clashes and embarrassing type situations that we encountered because it's a combination of two things. You have to look at the person that's coming in with the patient and you have to look at how they're presenting medical information to you that you're not accustomed to receiving from them. So Nancy Caroline was able to instill in us that no matter what circumstance you encounter, that you were going to be able to do it because I have the confidence in you. She became part of our family. It was a type of love type relationship. She was crazy about us and we were crazy about her. And just to let you know that we actually took her into our black neighborhoods, into different restaurants. Here's this type of food that I'm sure you've never eaten before. Here's your opportunity to do it. So she became essentially a, a member of every crew that she rode with. I want you to try to imagine this picture with Dr. Nancy Caroline, white physician, walking down the halls of uh, a hospital with four black guys with smocks, afro, and beards, walking right into the intensive care unit and walking right up to a person's bedside, not stopping at the desk and saying, I'm here with these trainees or whatever. We were afforded areas that were only reserved for physicians or a residents or anesthetists, uh, anesthesiologists, we were given carte blanche to enter every particular arena in the hospital. And it was unheard of for a group of African-Americans to do that at that particular time. It was unbelievable that she was able to break that barrier. The one thing about Nancy is that she's a perfectionist and she demands that of them. In her mind, if you're going to be seen as a medical professional, you've got to operate as a medical professional, which means you have to know exactly what to do. You need to know exactly how to do it. And you need to be able to pull it off without messing it up. Then when you get to the hospital, you need to know how to speak to someone to say, this is what I did. This is how I did it. And these are the results of that. Medicine is a very particular art slash science. And knowing how to speak to other medical professionals is of critical importance. And she knows that if somebody's going to take her paramedics seriously, that they're first going to have to accept that, okay, these guys are professionals. And she knows that they, you know, the hurdles before them are enormous. Not only is there doubt about the efficacy of paramedics, but there's certainly doubt about who these gentlemen are that are providing it. And so she lets it be known that, look, the whole world is waiting for you guys to fail. So I'm going to drive you harder than you've ever been driven. And I'm going to make this as difficult as possible. And she calls it her Orwellian reign of terror. 
Um, and she, she does not apologize for how hard it is, but she, they understand and, and she makes clear that look, the world is waiting for you to fail. So if you want to succeed, you're going to have to be better than anyone all the time. What was her actual role? I mean, what would you have called her, her, her job description? So technically, she was what we would call a medical director. And now, this is sort of another one of Saffer's innovations. Now, you would not find an EMS service in the country that doesn't operate under the auspices of a doctor. But at that time, that was, the doctors were not closely associated with EMS. So Saffer sort of pairs his service with a physician that's specifically supposed to look over the protocols and, and make sure that, that everything they're doing is of the latest technology and thinking but also that, that they're doing it properly. You know, someone needs to be reading the reports and paying attention to the calls and saying, okay, is what we want them to do actually being carried out? And is it, and is it being effective? Like, do we need to change these things? And so a medical director is an incredibly important role. But at that time, it was not, it was not common in EMS services. You write about the competition between, say, the police force and the, and the Freedom House personnel and how there are scanners involved and people are racing to scenes. And at, at some point, it's the white community that prevails here, isn't it? It is. At some point, the mayor can no longer deny that EMS is critical and that it's something that the city of Pittsburgh needs to invest in. And so he begins to invest in this program. He's buying ambulances and, and staffing up a new service, but he's going to do it without Freedom House. We ceased operations in October of 1975. Pittsburgh EMS started their service in June of 1975. So we actually saw their ambulances going up and down the street. They weren't allowed to come into the Hill District or Oakland or the downtown Pittsburgh because Freedom House had a contract with the city. We just started, okay, you all got that part of town, fine, more power to you, until it was discovered that the city had refused to renew Freedom House's contract. They were going to start their own city service, and there was no room in it for Freedom House. It was a very sad and somber type of time period for all of us. Uh, up until the very last day where Nancy Caroline had to call the police dispatcher and let them know that Freedom House was ceasing operation at midnight. Not only does he remove the funding from Freedom House, but when he hires his new paramedics to run the citywide program, Freedom House employees are not among his first hires. The only reason that most of them get hired is because Nancy Caroline, who was, the city asked Nancy Caroline to be their medical director, and she said, I'll do it for you, but you're going to have to take every Freedom House employee you want to job. And she came up with a, an excellent outcome. And there was an agreement between the Freedom House Board of Directors, including her and Dr. Peter Schaffer, and the city of Pittsburgh, that specifically stated that once Freedom House was phased out, all of its employees would be phased into the city's system. Now, this agreement, you would expect, was signed and binding. But the problem being with the agreement is we, the employees, had no knowledge of the agreement. Only the city of Pittsburgh government and Pittsburgh EMS at that time knew about their agreement. So they kind of kept it quiet. And once Freedom House's personnel came into the city system, they could renege on their agreement, which they did without very much retribution because we didn't know the agreement existed. As a matter of fact, I had to be retrained according to their standards all over again. They would not accept any of the training 
here I am, helped write the book on paramedic training, and I had all this experience in pre-hospital care, and I came in as the third person on a crew. So the mayor is more or less sort of strong-armed into hiring Freedom House employees. And as they will tell you, the city was forced to take them, but the city was not forced to keep them. And so, you know, very quickly, they are having to take tests every day. And these tests are pass-fail. And if you fail, you're, you're gone. And so within a year of the 20-some-odd people who went, only 10 or 12 remain. So very quickly, the original paramedics, the people with seven years of experience running EMS calls in the city, are sent to the wayside. Some of them survive and continue to grow. John Moon spends his entire career with EMS and retires as a deputy chief. There are others that go on to be supervisors. There are some that leave and go to other EMS services, open up EMS institutions in other states. There are politicians, there are physicians that come out of this. It launches a lot of careers. It brought a lot of people out of obscurity. But there's no way to skirt the fact that the world's first paramedics were not only not accepted by the Roman municipal government, but they were actively undermined and ultimately destroyed by the city of Pittsburgh. It was a concerted effort by city government, as well as Pittsburgh Emergency Medical Services, to eliminate as many of Freedom House's personnel as possible. And it was very, very, very successful. Now, saying that, I don't want it construed in any way, shape, or form that I have any type of animosity against Pittsburgh EMS. Uh, actually, I love the department. I love the people, and I enjoyed working there. But the first year or two years there were really hellish, primarily because there was this effort going on throughout the department to remove not only the employees, but any memories of Freedom House, period. Oftentimes, the crew that I was on, they were merely following orders. So they really wasn't allowed. So in the day-to-day conversations, they were able to find out how much I knew. And I also was able to find out how much they did not know. As karma would have it, I'm the third person on the crew not allowed to Uh, examine patients, not allowed to treat them, not allowed to talk on the radio or anything. We go on a life-threatening call. The person's unconscious, not breathing, and doesn't have a heartbeat. We walk into the house. They walk over to examine the patient and find out that he's in cardiac arrest. Oh, what have we run into? They immediately turned around and looked at me and said, you take over. Yeah, the same person that wasn't allowed to do anything. So I centrally was introduced by fire, for lack of a better term, primarily because at that particular time, I found out that they had absolutely no idea on how to deal with critical care emergencies. The city had blown up this highly trained super ambulance concept, and it was filled with people that had never experienced life-threatening emergencies in the field. They accepted me as an integral part of, of the crew themselves because without that particular call, who knows how long I would have to be this third wheel. And it had to be kept a secret because I wasn't allowed to, to, to do anything. So it wasn't that John Moon really helped us save this patient. No, you know, as a matter of fact, 
we asked for a backup crew and the backup crew came and actually took over the call and I couldn't interact with them because I wasn't allowed to, despite the fact that I had actually coordinated the call from the beginning to the end. During that time, I also noticed that a lot of the people that I worked with at Freedom House were actually being eliminated, put out of work, also being put through the unnecessary training procedures in an effort to force them out. So I got myself into a, a mental focus to the point that, okay, I know what I need to do to stay here. But if I ever get into a position where I can make a change in this department, I'm going to devote the remaining part of my career to do that. As I rose up through the ranks and became a supervisor, unfortunately, I had to be twice as good. And as I got to certain positions, I noticed that the department as a whole remained 97, 98% white. There was a time in Pittsburgh EMS where there were only six African-Americans and 162 member workforce. But what the department failed to realize is they had a troublemaker on their hands. As I got through the ranks, I became uh, more boisterous for lack of a better term. Then I had to work on the diversity issue within the department. I brought that to the surface of my administration, that it, it's kind of sad that this whole career began in the Hill District from a, a Black organization, and we only have five or six African-Americans. We went 10 years without hiring an African-American paramedic for the city of Pittsburgh the troublemaker voices concerns. And I was able to get my boss at that time, who was the chief of the department, to listen. And the reason why he listened is because he did his internship under my direction at Freedom House. So he came into the organization, Freedom House. I kind of took him under my wings and made him feel comfortable. And he never forgot that. This is what I would call a happy-sad story. Freedom House develops the concept, paves the way, serves as a model nationally and internationally, and then gets squeezed out. The city of Pittsburgh goes for 10 years without hiring an African-American paramedic. And yet, little by little, whittle by whittle, John Moon sticks it out at Pittsburgh EMS and begins to use his seniority and respect to get more African-Americans hired on. Essentially, in doing this, he was helping to rescue from the ashes of Freedom House some sort of a legacy, some lingering embers of hope, seeds of opportunity. It was up to me to make sure it worked. I went out into the community, went to community centers and respected churches and places like that on a recruitment campaign. And it was based around what we did at Freedom House, where we would get people with no experience and, and put them into an EMT class, pay them a stipend while they were going. And once they completed the EMT component, they would go into the paramedic training. In addition to that, I was able to convince the city of Pittsburgh to hold positions open within Pittsburgh DMS until this group uh, completed their training. 
Fortunately, we were able to, to get the very first diversity recruitment program in the city of Pittsburgh. No other department had ever had that and had undertaken that, that project. A little more from John Moon in just a bit. I'm grateful to Kevin Hazard for helping to retrieve the legacy of Freedom House from deep shadows, for pulling it back out into the sunshine. He tells the whole story in his book, American Sirens, the incredible story of the black men who became America's first paramedics. I personally had no idea that EMS, paramedics, arrived in history at such a late date. And I certainly had no idea of the gutsy, path-breaking work performed by that handful of African-American pioneers in Pittsburgh. A last word from Kevin Hazard. I asked him to share, if he were willing, some defining moment in his own paramedic career. And this is what he had to say. We get called to a woman. She's about 23 weeks pregnant, and she is clearly in labor. Water's broken. She's sitting on her couch, and we walk through the door. And, you know, we, we didn't realize what's going on at first because, you know, 23 weeks, is, you don't necessarily notice. She tells us, I think my water's broken. So we pick her up. We get her to the ambulance. Almost immediately upon entering the ambulance, she delivers. Now, at 23 weeks, you, you were talking about a child the size of a Coke bottle. And he's not breathing. His heart is not beating. I mean, my whole body is trembling. This is, this is the worst case scenario. I'm 20 minutes from anything. You know, I, I begin CPR. I begin breathing for this child. And by the time we get to the hospital, he has a heart rate. He has a respiratory rate. And we come walking through the door. I'm not asking for in that moment for someone to thank me. I'm not asking for, for someone to give me a high five or anything. But as we walk through the door, the doctors sort of come running in and snatch mom and baby and off they go. And they sort of, they just disappear. And I look at my partner and I said, were, were we really a part of this? Did we, <laughs> did we really just do this? And, you know, EMS to this day, it, it is oftentimes overlooked. Dedicating yourself to a job that people either don't understand or oftentimes do not appreciate can be difficult because if that's what you're doing all day, every day, and, and a job like that is not simply, you don't just arrive and clock in and do it and eat lunch and clock out and go home. That is something you've got to dedicate yourself to. It is, it is difficult to do it knowing that you know, your contribution, as critical as it is, will never in any way be recognized. And, and that's, that's simply something you accept. That is part and parcel of the job. It's, it's a very strange situation to find yourself in. You know, I think back to these first paramedics who would have to walk through the door and explain to someone what a paramedic was. You know, to this day, if there's an accident, the police or the news will refer to fire, police, and other emergency personnel. You know, we're still misunderstood. We're, we're still overlooked. And so I can, I can understand, you know, how it must have been in 68 when nobody knew what you did. Because in 2022, the understanding is, that, is not that much better. There's a man named George McCary, very young, 1968. So he's, he's, he's among the second class of Freedom House paramedics. You know, he's a high school graduate, no interest in getting a job, just wants to hang out and have fun. He lives with his grandmother. His grandmother's about to kick him out. He doesn't know what he's going to do. And his cousin comes to him and says, hey, I hear there's this thing. It's called Freedom House. And it'll give you training. They'll pay you to go to training. And it'll give you a job. And so he says, fine, I'll do that. And his grandmother says, I don't think you're going to make it. He sticks through the class just to prove her wrong. This young guy is sort of a self-described hustler. And one of his first nights, he's called out to a person who's found down, no heart rate, not breathing, by all intents and purposes, dead. 
and George and his partner begin CPR, and they transport this man to the hospital, and he's alive when they drop him off. And the man is he he he's talking to the doctors, and it's, you know this is at night. This is in a small hospital, you know, crowded room, and George is sort of on the side of you know at the, in the very corner of this room, watching this man speak to these physicians who he found just moments before dead. George can't even put words to how he feels in that moment. He just sort of looks at me and says, I did that. That was me. The reason this is happening right now is me. I did this. And that was it for him. It turned his whole life around. That feeling that touching something sort of so ineffable as, as a, you know, a, a fleeting life, you know, this, this thing that, that almost doesn't exist. And you kind of just, it's a catching the corner of a shadow and bringing it back. And that's what he did. There are stories like that for everyone you talk to. The first time that they really treated someone who was absolutely critical and they watched it turn around, that memory for George, he will take that with him for the rest of his life. And my memories like that, I will take them for the rest of my life. And that to me is something close to wonder. It is being able to catch the corner of a shadow and bring it down and, and breathe life into it. Author Kevin Hazard And now my sincere, very special thanks to John Moon, one of the Freedom House paramedics who was gracious enough to enrich our telling of this story with his very own firsthand insights and memories. A final word from him now on what this all means to him personally and what he hopes the world might remember. I didn't know what I was getting into at that particular time, but here I am going into the operating room and intubating patients that are ready to go under surgery. Those types of things that are normally done by anesthetists or an anesthesiologist, walking into an intensive care unit, not stopping at the desk to say, I'm here, show me around, but immediately walking up to a person's bedside with Dr. Nancy Caroline and saying, okay, what do you want me to do for this patient? I would say we were living in the moment, but it really didn't dawn on me until there was no more Freedom House. And once there was no more Freedom House and I experienced the issues and concerns and problems that I had in that transition period, then I knew then that we had made a mark on this, not necessarily Pittsburgh, but this country. If I look back at that, it's amazing. Every time I see an EMS unit, I I wonder, do they know where the foundation of that career path came from? For Constant Wonder, I'm Marcus Smith. This episode of our podcast was produced by Eric Scholzka and Colson Darrington, with sound design by Addie Mangum, Josh Cloward, and the BYU Broadcasting Sound Design Team. Thanks for listening. Constant Wonder is a production of BYU Radio.